Well, good morning. And uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 3 on this, our first week in Advent. And I'll begin with a question. Where are you from? That's a question we often ask people when we meet them for the first time. I bet you've been asked that quite a lot of times in your life. Where are you from? If someone asked you, how would you answer? In our country, in our culture, we tend to answer that question based on uh, geography. I'm from a place. I'm, I was, I'm from the greater Miami, Florida area specifically. But did you know that not all cultures answer that question geographically? They think of themselves not as coming from a specific place, but coming from a specific people. And if I was answering that way, I would say, I am Brian. I come from Gene Douglas, the son of Hubert, the son of Sherman, the son of Daniel. It makes sense that certain other cultures weigh people over place. We tend to think in terms of place because we live in a very transient, mobile culture. There are dozens of places Places of origin represented just in this room right here. Some of them very far from here. But if you had grown up in a culture that was not as mobile as ours, a place answer just wouldn't make much sense. I mean, imagine how the conversation would go. Oh, hi, uh, where are you from? Oh, here. Oh, me too. And that would be basically how that conversation would always go. If you lived in a place where people tended to stay in the town that they grew up in. Like, for example, I'm reading a novel right now about a South American family over many generations. The whole story is set in a single village. Uh, The place never changes, but the people do. And so the whole book begins with, on the very first page, in chart form, a genealogy of the family. Place is not nearly so much as important in a setting like that as people are. So we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but very soon after his birth, he moved to a town called Nazareth, north from there, and he spent most of his life uh, up until chapter 3 here in Luke in Nazareth. So how would Jesus have answered the question, where are you from? In the Bible, place is always very important in the Bible, but people was the most important thing about you. Where you come from, is a you'd answer that question in terms of people. Consequently, all the Jewish people kept a genealogy, and that's how they answered the question, where are you from? So let's see how Jesus would have answered the question. Where are you from? From Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 23 through 28, or 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semein, the son of Yosek, the son of Yoda, the son of Yoanan, the son of Fresa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Yorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, 
the son of Yonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menah, the son of Maratah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphazad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaeel, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray before we, before we begin to dive into this passage. Our Father in heaven, by your spirit, be with us and reveal things to us that we never knew before today. Make Christ clearer in our minds. Through this passage, we pray in his name. Amen. So only two of the four gospel writers write a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew does it right at the beginning of his, uh, of his gospel in chapter 1. The very first thing he wants you to know about Jesus is, here's the genealogy of Jesus. Then here in Luke, uh, Luke tells us a genealogy of Jesus. It, he kind of sandwiches it in between uh, the initial things about Jesus, the, the prefatory stuff. This is where, this is his birth. This is how he grew up. And then right after this comes, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. So Luke puts the genealogy between getting ready for earthly ministry and now here's the earthly ministry. If you compare the two genealogies, you will immediately notice they are completely different. They list different names in a different sequence, and they have a different number of names on each list. They even move in opposite directions. Matthew moves forward in time from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. Luke moves backward in time from Jesus all the way back to Adam. So why are they so different? Are the gospel writers making these up? Do they, did they just not do their homework? Before they, before they started writing? Well, most, most commentators think that the two genealogies represent the two sides of Jesus' family tree. That Matthew is the history of Joseph's family, whereas Luke is the history of Mary's family. Notice how Luke's list, for example, acknowledges that Jesus was not, uh, Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. That's understood to be a transition away from the line of Joseph, and into the line of Mary, Mary's family tree. But mostly what we have here is a big, long list of names. That's what we have. Uh, There are 25 genealogies found in the Bible. Have you ever wondered what you're supposed to do with a genealogy as you're reading through the Bible, right? Sometimes it's kind of hard. Have you ever done this? You're reading through the Bible, you come across a genealogy, and you begin to read... Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of... Skip, 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 skip. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. There you go. Well, I've done that before, and 
You know, I, I'm, I would guess that anyone who's read the Bible has. Because when you come across a big, long list of names, you just can't help but ask the question, what am I supposed to learn from a big, long list of names? Well, actually, I think a lot. Uh, I'm going to give you, kind of to start off, before we really deal with this passage specifically, I'd like to give you three uh, three things that we can learn from the genealogies in the Bible. Pretty much any genealogy in the Bible. Here's a couple tricks, a couple tools, a couple things you can bring into it and watch for, and you will learn something from any of the genealogies in the Bible. Here's the first thing. Individual stories from the genealogy serve as reminders of what has happened before. Or to put it another way, don't think of this as a list of names but as a list of stories. You see, when Luke writes about David, Boaz, Judah, Jacob, Abraham, Methuselah, Seth, Adam, these are not just names on a page. Each one of them carries with it a story, or in some cases, like David, for example, a whole collection of stories. I mean, a huge chunk of the Bible is written just about the life of David. Um, So, Every biblical genealogy isn't just a list of names. It's a reminder of what God has done in ages past. You're supposed to, as you read through the genealogy, be reading not just a list of names, but a list list of stories. These lists were written partly to remind us of what has come before us. How do your conversations with your oldest friends go? You know, the one or two people that have literally known you all your life or longer than anyone else. When you get together with people like that, what do you talk about? Well, I mean, I guess that sometimes you talk about, you know, things that are going on right now, but you can't, you can't have a conversation with an old friend before too long, something like this. They say, you remember that time? Do you remember that time we did this? Do you remember that time that this happened? Oh, man, that was the best. Or, I hope we never do that again. You know, uh, if you're... If you're stories with your old friends are like mine. Um, But, you know, you just can't help but reminisce together when you get together. Do you remember that time? That's that's how we talk with with our oldest friends. That's something like what the genealogies in the Bible are doing. Do you remember when God did this? Do you remember when he did that? And it's very healthy for us to be reminded about the past because we have a tendency to think that we are at the center of what God is doing in the world. We're not. God's story began long before any of us were ever born. And it will continue for an eternity after our lives have ended. And that's good news. We need to be reminded of just how much God has done long before we ever came on the scene. We need to be reminded of that. And genealogies do that. So that's the first thing. Think of them not just a list of names, a list of stories. Secondly, All genealogies in the Bible tell you something about the person that the genealogy is is leading up to. All of them tell you something about them. I think we get this kind of intuitively. Um, Have you ever heard someone use their their heritage to explain their personality traits? Something like, uh, oh, you know, I talk with my hands because I'm an Italian. You know, something like that. Or, grr, it's my Viking blood that makes me tough. You know? Or if you talk to my dad, who will tell you that it's, it's the fact that he's Scottish that makes him less likely to spend money than other people. 
So, you know, we have this tendency to, to explain things about ourselves based on uh, where we come from in terms of the people that we come from. Every culture in history has done this same thing. We see quite a few examples of it in the Bible. One of the ones that's the most striking is in Isaiah chapter 6. When the prophet Isaiah comes before, uh, he, he's given a vision of God in his throne room. He's sort of placed in the presence of God in heaven, and he becomes terrified by this. And he says, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And kind of in our context, that last phrase sounds a little strange, you know? I mean, the fact that I come from, uh, that I have unclean lips should be enough, right? That's, that's all the reason in the world to not be here today in, your, in the, your presence, in your throne room, God. But see, Isaiah is acknowledging that he's unworthy to be, presence, unworthy to be in the presence of God, both because of his own sins and because of his genealogy. He can't point to anything in himself that is good, and he can't even point to the goodness of his people as a reason why he's worthy to be here right now, today. This is an interesting example of that. In the Bible, uh, they, they thought the same way that we do. You know, we are who we are because of, because of where we come from. Uh, biblical genealogies tell us most clearly about the person that they're describing when they mention people in the genealogy that were in leadership positions. There were two main kinds of leadership positions in ancient Israel. One was the royalty, people from the king's family. The other one were, were the priests, people from the priestly family. Both of those offices were hereditary. So, if you read through a genealogy and you see a king or a priest, then you're learning something about the person down the genealogy from that person. Everyone who comes after them is royalty. Everyone who comes after them is priestly. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus emphasizes his royalty. Nearly everyone in the list is the king of Israel. Here in Luke... David and some other notable royal names are mentioned, but the emphasis is not on the, the kingship of Christ, the royalty of Jesus. It, these, there's a lot of priestly names in this list. And so this, this is emphasizing Jesus' priestly heritage. If you think back to the 12 tribes of Israel, you remember that there was uh, Judah, a royal, the royal tribe, and there was Levi, the priestly tribe. In the genealogies of the Bible, you don't, often see those two lines intersect. But here at the person of Jesus, we have exactly that. The royal line and the priestly line coming together in a unique way. That speaks to Jesus' unique role amongst God's people, bringing together things that no one else ever could. So that's the second thing that you can learn from any genealogy in the Bible. Every genealogy tells the reader something about the person that the genealogy is pointing toward or, or ending with. Here's the third thing that you can learn from biblical genealogies. They're always designed to prove some kind of a bigger point. There's always a bigger point being made. This is harder to see sometimes because it can be a little bit subtle. You have to pay attention. You have to watch for clues. Is there any repetition? Are there any pauses in the genealogy where it sort of pauses to describe someone or focus in on them? Uh, is there anything unusual or surprising? Are there any phrasing changes? Does anything seem to be emphasized? 
Sometimes you have to intuit this more than anything else. But it's one of those things that the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. Read enough biblical genealogies, and you'll, de- you'll develop a sense of what the author is up to when he's writing a biblical genealogy. So what's the bigger point here in Luke's genealogy of Jesus? What's Luke really driving at? What are the really important things here? I see a couple. The first is, Jesus was a real human being, firmly rooted in the family tree of his ancestors. That might seem really obvious at first, but think about it for a moment. In the religious literature of the world, there are many, many mythical stories about larger-than-life figures. You can read about the grand adventures of Muhammad, the Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tzu, and in each case, you, you find yourself having to sort fact from fiction. Which of these stories, if any, really happened? How long after the person's life were they recorded? Was it a few years, several decades, or even centuries after the fact? Does it matter if any of this, does it even matter if any of this is historically correct? Because maybe, and maybe the whole point is the facts don't matter, but it's sort of the spirit of the whole story that's supposed to inspire us to do something or believe something. But here Luke is writing his gospel within one generation of Jesus having been on earth while eyewitnesses were still alive. And he wants his reader to be certain that the person that he's writing about, Jesus, is not a mythical figure. Rather, he was a real human being who was raised by a man called Joseph. He was the son of Heli, the son of Matat, and so on. Don't underestimate the importance of this fact. Christianity has always claimed to be truth, not fairy tale. And the overwhelming majority of its history was recorded while eyewitnesses were on hand to agree or disagree with the stories given. In fact, numerous important confirmations of Christian history come from the writings of non-Christians. No one could say that they're trying to promote a new religion, and yet they confirm details of the biblical story. So that's kind of the first, the first thing is that Jesus was a real man. That's one, of, uh, that's one of Luke's emphases. There's a second reason that that matters. Not just the historicity of Christianity. But it's really important in Luke's gospel for him to say, no, Jesus was a real human being firmly rooted in the family tree of his ancestors. Because in chapters 1 through 3, he tells this story of, this miraculous birth and these, you know, in, you, you know the you know the Christmas story. You've been around it long enough. But you know, shepherds and wise men and angels and stars and miracles occurring and all kinds of, you know, crazy things occurring, supernatural stuff happening. Then, beginning in the next chapter, chapter four of Luke, Jesus begins this earthly ministry in which he performs miracles and and incredible things are happening. Even people are being raised from the dead. If you read. 24 chapters of such an unusual story, it would be natural to see Jesus as a divine figure who is completely different than us. But Luke wants to make sure we know Jesus was a man. He was a regular Jewish man. Like many in his day, he could say, I'm a descendant of David. I'm a descendant of Abraham. But most of his family tree consists of pretty regular people that we don't actually know anything about. I mean, who were Melchi, Adi, Kosam, and Almadam? 
We have no idea. They would be absolutely lost to history if they weren't in this list in Luke chapter 3. Luke's genealogy confirms a key idea in the history of Christianity. Jesus was both God and man. He was fully God and fully man. God of God, light of light, begotten of the Father through whom all things were made? Yes. And he was also a regular Jewish man, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi. Both are true. There's one other emphasis in Luke's genealogy here that I think is probably actually the main one, the most important part of it. The main emphasis is that this person, Jesus, is part of a greater plan. Notice the strangest feature of this entire genealogy. All the way down in the final verse, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy, his lineage, all the way back to Adam. I mean, that's pretty ambitious, isn't it? I mean, it's the genealogy project to end all genealogy projects. I mean, not even the Mormons can go back that far. See, then he, you know, he doubles down on it. He doesn't just go back to Adam. He's, he's, he's not content to just go back to Adam. He finishes the whole thing with God himself. Luke is trying to emphasize that this whole thing, the whole story, goes back to God himself. It begins with God. It flows from him and according to his plan. That leads me to three things that we should take away from this text. Three things that we should take away from Luke's genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. The first one is this. You need to know from Luke chapter 3 that God's plans are greater than ours. His plans are greater than ours. Just look at this list. Just take a glance at it. Look at how many lives are represented here. Not just the individual people on the list, but generations of people after generations of people. And then beyond the list, consider the complex movements of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It all looks so random to us, so completely out of control, as if the world is just swirling. But all along, the world has not been swirling. God has been working in a direction. History wasn't randomly moving. It was moving from Adam to Seth to Enos to Canaan to Mahalaliel all the way to Jesus himself. The whole plan involves specific people in strategic places. There are trillions upon trillions of tiny details to manage all the way. And as if all that wasn't complicated enough, God decided to make prophecies along the way, predictions that would have to be accounted for later. There's this sort of cumulative effect of it all. God had to manage all these details, not just at one time or in one place, but everywhere, throughout all the universe, over and over again, throughout the whole history of everything. That's amazing. What's the most complicated thing you know how to build? I've built IKEA furniture. <laughs> we have people in this church who can build very complicated things. 
people here who know how to build computer networks and microchips, who know how to do mechanical, they know how to build mechanical and irrigation systems. We, know how, we have people here that know how to build organizations and publications and, and create songs and oil paintings. Some people here know how to make difficult things simple. And there are even a few people here in this room who can fix human bodies. I mean, that's amazing. But no one here can build a universe. None of us can fill that universe with the uncountable, intricate things. Command the physics of galaxies and of atoms. None of us can breathe real life into creatures made out of dirt. None of us can work out a plan that spans all time and space. God can. If it had been left up to us, this family tree would have ended with Adam. But this isn't our plan, it's God's plan. And his plans are greater than ours. He knows what he's doing. He's proven that many, many times over the history of everything. He is moving this whole story from Adam to Jesus to all eternity. Will you trust him? Will you concede to him the honor and the authority that he is due? Will you learn to follow him? Or will you instead spend your life pushing back against him? That's the first thing. God's plans are greater than ours. Secondly, God's patience is greater than ours. Look at Luke's genealogy again. Just glance at it. How many names are on that list? I count 77 generations before the Son of God comes in the flesh. Just on this list. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised to Adam and Eve that they would have a descendant who would fix everything that they had broken. How long would you be willing to wait for that promise to be kept? 77 generations is a long time to wait for anything. The truth is, we probably wouldn't even count something that happened after 77 generations as a promise kept. And what if I told you one of your descendants would be wealthy and internationally famous? I mean, you'd think if it was your, if it was your child, that would be pretty cool because then they could you know, fly you around the globe and take care of you. And um, If it was your grandkid, that would be wonderful too because you could watch that happen and it would be pretty cool and... If it was your great-grandkid, maybe you'd be there to see. But you know, beyond that, does it really change your life that much? Does a promise like that change anything for you? How many generations would it take for you to feel like that promise wasn't very relevant? If you, what if I, then I told you later that it was 77 generations away? Oh, by the way, you know that promise about somebody being you know, famous and, you know, Oh, that's 77 generations away. That's at least, at least, minimal math, that's at least 1,500 years. You know, if, it, if I told you that, you'd probably shrug off the whole thing. And that would be really understandable because something that far away just really isn't very relevant to your life. But God is so much more patient than we are. 
He, is, he, was willing, he was willing to patiently bear with the hostility and rebellion of all of humanity while he worked forward toward this moment, the moment in this story, the birth of his son, the coming of the Savior, in which he would intervene for our salvation. How incredible is that, that he was willing to put up with so much for so long? We sometimes struggle to wait an hour. But he is so patient, bearing with us in our frailty and our failures indefinitely until his purposes are complete. And he is being patient with us even now. He's being so patient with us. His work of salvation is not yet complete in the world and in you. Just as he had to wait until the right time to send his son in grace and peace, even now he is waiting to the right time to send his son again in justice and power to make all things right and new again. God's being patient with you. Don't underestimate his patience toward you. Does hearing about that give you joy? Will you thank him for his unbelievable patience? Or will you instead waste this season of grace? That's the second thing. God's patience is greater than ours. And here's the last thing. God's purposes are far beyond our imagination. Far beyond. Throughout the many years and generations represented in this genealogy, who would have ever guessed what God was doing? Who would have ever known that he was creating a single story that would incorporate the stories of every person, not just on this list, but of all time? When Jesus came, no one recognized him, despite all the prophecies, despite the the miraculous birth, despite his own statements, this is who I am. Even his own disciples had no idea what was going on. And, you know, honestly, is it any wonder Who could have ever guessed what God was doing? To think that he loved the world enough that he would send his son to trade places with us. That he would take upon himself our guilt. And that he would give to us his own blessing. God's purposes are far beyond our imagination. All the way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve chose a cursed life of rebellion against God. They took us with them took us down with them, and they took the whole creation too. Who would have ever guessed that God would settle for nothing less than the redemption of all things, the recreation of the world, and the change, redeeming everything back to the way it was supposed to be? God's purposes are far beyond our imagination, and they are good. What is God doing in your life? What's he doing in your life right now? Who knows? More than we could ever guess, imagine, or dream of. That's what he's doing. More than we could imagine in your wildest, wildest dreams. That's what he's doing. Not one of us is listed in this genealogy. But the same God who was at work in each one of those lives is at work in yours. Don't fight against him. It's not just futile. It's destructive. And now, in the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever 
ask or think. To him be glory throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.